Uh, we turn then in God's Word to Hebrews in chapter 2. Uh, and uh, one person present here challenged me to read uh, the seven volumes of John Owen. I haven't been able to, to, to be doing that, but I, I just mentioned that, that there is a further explanation uh, of the text available uh, there for you uh, if you if you so desire to dig further into this uh, rich and deep uh, and wonderful book uh, of Hebrews. We'll be just going to chapter 4 uh, in our studies uh, and moving on uh, to, to another book of the Bible. But we're here in chapter 2 uh, this evening uh, thinking of God bringing many sons to glory, which is mentioned in verse number 10. And, and as we sit here this evening and, uh, and reflect on, on one another, we, we think of what's going on in our lives uh, that we are on this journey, that God is bringing us unto glory. And the experiences of our life, the joys and the sorrows, are all part of that journey that we've been singing of in the Psalms 16 and 17. One of the most uh, fascinating uh, activities that humans are engaged in at this time, it's, it's fascinating uh, to me uh, anyway, is seeing how to survive on the moon uh, in 1972 was the last time uh, that people walked on the moon. And, and now again, 50 years later, uh, scientists are revisiting this idea of moving to the moon, people living on the moon. Expl exploration with astronauts planning to stay longer and longer and developing the apparatus which would support life on the moon and from there to launch missions to other planets is ongoing at this very moment. One piece of apparatus that they're developing is a 3D printer to make bricks from moon dust. Much more equipment will be needed to seek survival on the moon. That journey, that migration, that transplant of humans from this planet to that planet is incredibly challenging but it's being worked at at this very moment. So too is a far more certain and glorious migration of believers from earth to heaven. Verse 10, God is bringing sons to glory. This paragraph that we're looking at, verses 10 to 13, is situated in the wider context with which you're very familiar now of the greatness of Jesus in chapter 1 to chapter 10. The great things of Judaism, he's writing to the Hebrews, that is Christian Jews, perhaps in Rome around the AD 60s, that divinely appointed religion of Judaism the great things in it are considered and Jesus is shown to be greater than each one of them. Greater than the prophets we've thought of already in chapter 1 verse 1 to 3. Greater than the angels and that's where we are at this very moment in chapters 1 and then 2. Greater than Moses in chapter 3. Than Joshua in chapter 4. And then Aaron the high priest in chapters 5 to 10. Everything in Judaism God-appointed, effective, useful. Jesus is greater than. 
And so the writer keeps coming back uh, to this statement, this exhortation to verse 9. But we see him. 3 verse 1. Consider Jesus. The Hebrews were tempted and inclined to return to these great things in Judaism and hold on to those things that God had given. But Jesus had come, the greater prophet, greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua and his rest, greater than the high priest Aaron. And we've been reflecting that this is a message that, that we need to hear. We're not distracted by prophets or by angels or by Moses, Joshua or Aaron. But we face other distractions in our life that shift our eyes from Jesus, don't we? Now, I know mentioning the World Cup football in a sermon application irks some of you. And it's not a distraction to you because you have absolutely no knowledge or interest in football. But for some of us, it is a distraction. And over this month, we need to keep asking ourselves, am I being distracted from Jesus by football? But perhaps you are a big Christmas person. You have all the family round. And from now till the big day, you will be planning and preparing for it. Decorations, food, entertainment, traveling, sleeping arrangements, presents. The list is endless. And that it's what you could be distracted by. And we all need to hear this message of Hebrews. Consider Jesus. The section 10 to 13 belongs, as, as you know, which we're considering at this communion season to Jesus being superior to the angels. The point was argued in chapter 1. Jesus is son. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is seated and the angels, they are sent, they are servants. And the writer adds to those points he made in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that we thought of this morning. That Jesus is greater than the angels, not only as divine son, but also as perfect man. Because of the dignity and destiny which God gave to mankind in Eden, that they would dominate this world. Here, the perfect man is crowned with glory and with honor. He has dominion over all things, a position not assigned to the angels. This paragraph that we're thinking of this evening, 10 to 13, it moves the discussion on. And it does it in a, in a wonderful way. It does it by asserting that God is bringing many people to share in the exalted glory of Jesus as Lord of all the earth. 2.10 asserts that God is bringing many sons into that glory that Jesus has. The glory mentioned in 2 verse 7 and 2 verse 9, which is his dominion as perfect man over all the world, is the glory that we are destined for. Jesus will not be alone in that exalted glory, but he will share it with his redeemed people. We're thinking of four aspects of this journey to glory 
mentioned here this evening. Firstly, who he is bringing. Not all are going to end up in heaven, in that glory. God will not bring all human beings to glory. Hell will be occupied. The church father, Oregon, helpful to the church in many ways, especially through his famous third century work, the Hex Apla, which was, as you know, a six-columned work of early translations of the Old Testament. But he was a universalist. He believed that all creatures would end up in heaven, including the devil. We reject that view. But we're faced with the challenge of explaining the phrase in verse 8. Everyone. Jesus tasted death for everyone. What does it mean? Well, Lenski, who, who, who I use a lot and benefit a lot from, a Lutheran commentator, he argues that it means that Jesus died for every single human being. However, he acknowledges not everyone will choose to believe in Jesus, and so not everyone will end up in heaven. And that's a view that we reject. From other scriptures, we believe that all will be in heaven whom God decides will be in heaven. All will be in heaven whom Jesus died for. Thus we believe that Jesus died only for all his people. A people chosen by God. And this conviction of ours is indicated in numerous passages of scripture, isn't it? Matthew 1, 21, the words of the angel to Joseph of Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. John 10, 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's very definite. It's specific. Ephesians 5, 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The term many sons in verse 9 is a description of those who are redeemed by Jesus. This is the proper way to understand the general terms which are sometimes used in relation to Jesus' death. The general terms such as all and and everyone are often more narrowly defined in the immediate context just as here. Everyone is more narrowly defined by the term many sons. Sons. What a word this is. Until now, the writer has mentioned son a lot, but only of the divine, the eternal, the exalted, the glorious son of God. But now, he dares to apply the word to us. We too are sons of God, albeit much in a lower sense, without the divinity or the eternal substance, but sons of God. Nonetheless, And you see his point. God is bringing all his sons to glory. He's already brought the divine, the eternal son to glory. But now he's bringing all the other sons the same way to the same place to glory. 
astronauts, the elite, the specialists in science are there on the moon making that journey before any of us would ever be allowed to go there. Jesus has entered into that glory and all united to him by faith will enter there too. And this point about who he is bringing. It's important not to win an argument among your family or, 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 or with some youth group sometime. It's important because it guards the glory of Jesus. Maintaining that all those whom Jesus died for will be saved brings far more glory to Jesus than saying some he died for will be saved. The second statement makes Jesus appear weak incapable of seeing the job through. It suggests he does his part, then hands over to man to do his part. The wipers of my 17-year-old car just stopped last week. It was a wet week and this was a real problem. And so I went to my mechanic and he took the wipers out. But he couldn't fix it. And I had to take the part to another location in the town. And that's not what happens in the redemptive work of Christ. That he dies and makes atonement and then hands it over to man to choose his salvation or not choose it. Jesus carries the work through to the end. Whom he dies for enters glory. So the question you're asking is, why use everyone then in verse 8? Why not write many? Why confuse us and create disharmony within churches? Richard Brooks answers this question in his commentary. He gives two reasons for this broad term. He says it's a potent way for the writer to remind his essentially Jewish recipients that the gospel is as much for the Gentiles That Jesus died as much for the one as for the other. It's not just for Jews. It's for everyone. Gentiles. And he says, secondly, it's a delightfully spacious word. Full of grace. That multitude in heaven which no man can number. From every tribe and nation and people. So who he brings? The many sons to glory. But secondly, where he is bringing. The term glory means splendor, majesty, brightness, doesn't it? A general term used in scripture for the state of heaven, for the presence of God, for the destiny of every believer. For example, in Psalm 73 that we'll sing at the end, we read, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory, the glory of heaven. Romans 2, 9 and 10 uses it there as well. There will be glory, honor, and peace for believers. 2 Thessalonians 1, 10, when Jesus comes again, he will be glorified in his saints. Glory, splendor, brightness, majesty, And the presence of God is the destiny of believers. But in this context, glory describes 
particularly the dominion of man over all created things. This was a role not given to angels, but to mankind as made in the image of God. A dignity conferred upon him. Some astounding statements in the Bible are made about that glorious dominion begun at death and enlarged at the final judgment. 1 Corinthians 6.3 says of us, in that place of, of glory and dominion, that we will judge angels. Matthew 24 describes that glory that awaits believers, that position of dominion that Jesus has and will share with us. We will rule over cities. The destiny of believers is not some minor place at the back end of the, of the universe, but a glorious future of rule and dominion as kings and queens in creation. Comparisons are being made between the attempts at a moon settlement and the attempts of the first settlers in America. But there is no real comparison for planet Earth contains all that humans need for survival, but the moon does not. Glory, heaven, the state of believers beyond this life will not be like the moon. We're struggling for survival takes place, but a glorious place prepared by Jesus. And we learn from this that it is only Jesus that can and will make us, enable us to reach our full potential. Only he can bring us into the fullness of humanity. Without him, we will remain unfulfilled, a shadow of ourself, a poor excuse for a human being, as 2 verse 8 states, not everything in subjection to man. What is true of our future that we'll be brought into that glory, that exalted place of dominion over all creation. It's also true of our present. Only through Jesus can we reach our potential in every area of our lives, in our work, in our family as a mother, as a father, in our spiritual maturity. And this is countercultural, isn't it? Our society is seeking to reach its full potential by going further from Jesus. Get Jesus out of Christmas, out of RE classes, out of school assemblies, out of work conversations. Banish Jesus. But it's not less of Jesus we need to be truly human, but more of Jesus. It's Him who's going to bring us to the glory. The glory of exalted humanity reigning in that destiny that God gave to Adam and Eve in the beginning. And so Peter teaches us that employees are not always to insist on their rights. Just as Jesus did not always insist on his rights. More of Jesus in the workplace will enable us to reach our potential. 
And so Paul teaches us that husbands are to love their wives as Jesus loved the church. More of Jesus in a marriage will help us to reach our potential. And again, the apostle teaches us that we can do all things through Jesus who gives us strength. More of Jesus enables us to be the people God has created us and called us to be who he brings thirdly how he is bringing Jesus is described in our verses as the pioneer of our salvation or the founder in verse 10 of our salvation the author the one who carves out the way for us but how does he do it how does he bring to glory There's two ways, isn't there? By his incarnation and by his death. By his incarnation. By him becoming human. Our destiny is the glory of the first man and woman, our representative. Not because Adam and Eve resisted temptation, but because Jesus, the Son of God, has become man and our representative. He has taken our human nature and has now entered glory. So in him, joined to him, we too will enter that glory. The phrase, all have one source, in verse 11, has been interpreted of Adam, our head and representative, of Abraham, the father of the faithful, Or of God, the creator. All have one source. But the best interpretation, I think, is human nature. The verse is speaking of Jesus and believers. They have one source. They have one common human nature. And the following phrase seems to point us in that direction. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers because he himself also is truly man. The Old Testament references not only establish the true humanity of Jesus but also his relation to his people. They are his brothers because He is truly, really, absolutely human. Psalm 22 is cited first and describes them as brothers. I will tell of your name to my brothers. The other two references are from Isaiah chapter 8. The first first in verse 13, I will put my trust in him, emphasizes the weakness, the neediness of of Jesus' humanity, emphasizing the reality of his humanity. He he wasn't here on earth as a superman, immune to the challenges and trials of this world, but he was one here who trusted in his God. The second reference uses Isaiah and his children as a type of Jesus and his brothers. Behold, I and the children God has given me. This is how he brings us to glory. He takes our nature. He comes to us. He becomes truly human, so truly human that he calls us his brothers. 
He is flesh. He is blood. He is bone. And so in Bethlehem and in Nazareth and in Jerusalem and now in heaven, we are united to him. And just as Joseph, after the prison, after the pit, after the slavery, shared the glory of his rule with his brothers, so Jesus will share the glory of his dominion with his brothers. But secondly, by his death, the phrase, and and again, there's there's incredibly rich phrases, and little wonder John Owen wrote seven volumes on Hebrews. The phrase, perfect through suffering, in verse 10, emphasizes that the death of Jesus was essential. It wasn't enough that he became man. His death was essential. He became perfect. He was made perfect through suffering. He could not be the founder of our salvation without his death. This death had to be included in this whole enterprise, this whole scheme of bringing many sons to glory. The author, the founder, the pioneer of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. It doesn't mean that there was any moral imperfection in Jesus ever. But what it does mean is that Jesus by his death became the complete saviour. Without his death, bringing sons to glory could never happen. But with his death, the founder of our salvation was made perfect. He had full capacity. He was fully qualified and equipped to take us on this journey. One writer points out that Jesus had the offices of king and the offices of prophet, but he also needed the office of priest to be our savior. He could teach, he could rule, but he also needed to atone for our sins. And so by his incarnation and becoming truly human, and by his death, he is bringing us to glory. The phrase which describes his death in in, in this section, in verse 9, is tasted death for everyone. Tasted death. It's a term of substitution, isn't it? For is used here. In the place of, he dies in the place of the many. But but tasted death is no light term, meaning sample death, but rather it's an intensive term, meaning Jesus suffered the death we deserve in all its power. He suffered the physical and spiritual judgment of death. He tasted death. Christian writers have reflected on this, this phrase and they, they've sought to, to, to explain it in a, in a really helpful way. Using taste, they say, possibly has the suggestion of the short time that he was dead. Three days and three nights. 
King David is dead now at the time of writing for a thousand years. But, but Jesus was dead for only three days and three nights. And it's in that sense that he tasted death for everyone. John Chrysostom and many after him took this meaning. Uh, he writes, a brief act of sipping. A participation of death cut short, as it were, by the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. So extensively, we might say, Jesus tasted little of death, but intensively, he suffered all of it. One of the telling observations by an astronaut in this project for the moon settlement is that much of the equipment needed for the journey of many people to arrive at and live on and dwell on the moon has not yet been invented. But for our journey to heaven, everything has been accomplished. Jesus has become man. Jesus has tasted death. Everything has been done for our journey to that glory. And it will be made by every believer, not on a wing and a prayer, but on the basis of the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The Marrow Controversy in the 18th century in Scotland debated if assurance was of the essence of faith. That is, whether a person could be a true believer and still have doubts that they would be in heaven. The debate was detailed and misunderstandings were were myriad. But on this point, the Marrow men maintained that assurance was of the essence of saving faith. But it was not in the way that their opponents thought that they meant it. And this point is really useful. And I hope we get the use of it. The Marrow men meant that assurance that Jesus was the only Savior, the all-sufficient Savior, the God-sent Savior had to be of the essence of faith that Jesus can save me. But the assurance that he's my Savior does not always belong to saving faith. Both are desirable. Both that Jesus is the Savior and that Jesus is my Savior. But both are not always present. But the more we examine and study and soak ourselves in how he brings us to heaven by his incarnation, by his all-sufficient death, then not only will we have that objective assurance that Jesus is the Savior, but we will have the assurance also that he is my Savior. And lastly, why is he bringing? Why is God doing this? Is there anything in it for him? Yes, as always. His own glory. All that God does is for his own glory. And thus we could answer this point in a general way. Every action is for his glory. And every action of bringing sons to glory will bring not only great benefit to us and and wonderful 
experiences for all eternity, but will supremely and fundamentally bring glory to God. And here in verse 10, we have this asserted. Here is God who is the founder and goal of all things, the supreme governor of the universe, the creator of angels and men. But he acts in a way that befits his nature. It was fitting that he, verse 10 says, for whom and by whom all things exist. Here is a God who acts according to his attributes. He always acts in character. It was fitting. This befitted God, the type of God he is, the the panoply of attributes that he possesses, he, he acts within the parameters of his being. It was fitting that he should bring us to glory in this way. And why was it fitting that he should bring us by the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of his son Jesus Christ? Because his glory is seen. His attributes are displayed. And particularly verse 9 says, his grace. This is the one attribute of God that is singled out in this whole great enterprise of us being taken into the, 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 the destiny of mankind that he gave Adam and Eve at the beginning and Christ has secured his grace will bring us there. Black Friday had many bargains, didn't it? You perhaps took advantage of these. New TV or a phone or a sofa. I didn't see a greater bargain on Black Friday than Trevor's book for a tenor. Absolute bargain. But I didn't see anything of worth going for free. But think of this. Let it seep into our life, our soul. Going to glory. Is by the grace of God. And this is how Christianity and Christians stand out from the crowd. Other religions require works. Christianity offers salvation, forgiveness, glory by the grace of God. We need to keep the law perfectly, but cannot. Jesus has done that for us. We deserve to face God's judgment for our sins. Jesus has taken that for us. All by the grace of God. What a message to tell others. What a message to tell ourselves. Where he is bringing. Who he is bringing. Why he is bringing. How he is bringing to glory. And this journey will be completed. We've all been on journeys, haven't we, that we've never finished. People start studies and never finish them. Authors begin novels and don't complete them. Builders commence projects and don't always see them to the finish. And there's a full range of reasons for this incomplete thing. Sometimes people run out of money. Sometimes a person loses interest. Sometimes more pressing matters take over. Sometimes, like the shopping center in Bangor, there's a sadness associated with the incomplete journey. 
at this journey of bringing many sons to glory. This project, this plan, this scheme of God's will be fulfilled. All will arrive there. None will be left behind. Not because of who we are and our sweat and our effort and our perseverance, but because of the type of God our God is. Faithful to his word. All-powerful and full of grace.